Good afternoon. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. <clears throat> In the United States and much of the world, we're used to thinking, justifiably so, of China as the most consequential uh, Asian power. But a large and growing part of the Asian story and of globalization itself is the rise of India. Just this year, India surpassed China in terms of growth rates with the more than 7% growth, and it's, it's expected to re remain ahead for the foreseeable future. It was 25 years ago this summer that Prime Minister Rao announced the beginning of economic liberalization measures uh, that would transform the country and set, set the country on this path, pulling hundreds of millions of Indians out of poverty modernizing many facets of Indian uh, society, stimulating some cultural change, including uh, the weakening of caste uh, rigidities, and leading to the creation of entirely new industries and the rise of world-beating Indian multinational corporations. The abandonment of India's traditional socialist uh, uh, system has occurred under democracy, and so has been a fascinating experiment to watch. Success has also been accompanied by disappointment. High growth and progress has been accompanied by mediocrity and frustration in areas that have lagged behind. The public sector remains largely unreformed and a puzzling picture has emerged. Many of India's human development indicators have improved more slowly than in less impressive economies in the neighborhood. Is India ready to assume a role of potential superpower, as many in the West wish, and as India no doubt aspires to do? What priorities remain on the reform agenda, and what are the odds that they will actually be implemented? I'm pleased to have with us today two leading uh, experts on these topics who will discuss India's economic record and its prospects for taking on a larger role in world affairs, including as a regional balance on China's power. Let, me, let us begin then with uh, my colleague Swami Iyer. Swami Iyer is a research fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at, at Cato. He is very well known in, in India for writing his Swaminomics column that appears every Sunday in the Times of India. He's also the author of a book, Escape from the Benevolent Zookeepers. And he's, he's the author of a forthcoming book coming out in a few months from Narasimha Rao to Narendra Modi, which will be a review of the Indian uh, economic and other record. He has been called India's leading economic journalist by Stephen Cohen of the Brookings Institution. Uh, Mr. Cohen, unfortunately, couldn't be here today as uh, planned because of a serious health issue, and so he has uh, excused himself. Swami has also been the editor of India's two leading uh, financial dailies, the Economic Times and the Financial Express, and for a couple of decades he was the correspondent of The Economist in India. Please help me welcome Swami Iyer. Thank you. Uh, well, I've titled this 25 Years of Indian Reform, summed it up as private sector success, government failure, institutional weakness. Uh, I think that pretty well sums up 25 years. Uh, it's worth comparing 1991 with 2016, 25 years ago. If you go back to 1991, 
I remember India was called a bottomless pit for foreign aid. It was by far the largest single recipient of foreign aid. If you look to 2016 today, India today is actually a net aid giver. It gave a credit of $10 billion to Africa, $2 billion to Bangladesh, various things to Nepal, Bhutan, and so on. And India still gets a significant amount of gross aid, but after repayments and service, the, it's hardly half a billion. So astonishingly, the largest, biggest beggar in the world is now a slight donor. Uh, overseas Indians today send $73 billion to India per year as against foreign aid of 5 billion growth. So you can see how the, the, the diaspora has become infinitely more important than the World Bank and various other donors used to be. Uh, foreign investment is about $60 billion a year. Uh, in these 25 years, India's GDP per capita has shot up. It's gone from $375 per capita to about $1,700. Uh, in terms of its position in the world, Indian GDP was an irrelevancy if you go back to 1991. Now it's seen as the third largest in the world in terms of PPP. Uh, again, India's contribution to world growth used to be negligible. Uh, currently, it is estimated that 17% of all global growth is being contributed by India. It's a significant chunk. Uh, as much or more than China used to be contributing 10, 15 years ago. So it does show that India's position in the world has risen quite a bit. And finally, India's own GDP growth. Uh, historically, it used to be called the Hindu rate of growth of 3.5% for the first three decades. It pushed up to an 5.5%, though unsustainably, in the 1980s. And I would say it's, since then, it's been about 7.5%. Uh, right now, the IMF's latest World Economic Report more or less says that a sagging world economy is being propped up by the United States and India. I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. But the point being made is that India at 7.5%, 7.6% has now become the fastest growing major economy in the world. Uh, now, it has to be said this is less because India has accelerated than because China has decelerated, which is why our, the governor of our Reserve Bank, Raghuram Rajan, said, well, you know, let's not boast too much. India is more like the one-eyed person in the land of the blind. Uh, it did not get him good marks from the government, which was wanting to say, we are the champions. Uh, but it does sum up the fact that in a depressing gold global scenario, for India to be growing at 7.5%, even if there are some doubts about the data, is an astonishing turnaround from what was the situation 25 years ago. Again, going back to 1991, India was an unsophisticated exporter. The main exporters were simple things like agriculture, textiles, cut and polished gems. 25 years later, in 20, 25 years later, 2016, the biggest exports are software and business services, pharmaceuticals, automobiles, auto parts. India has become a global hub of R&D for literally hundreds of multinational companies. Uh, so India's success is not a success of cheap labor, as was the case of a large number of other Asian miracle economies. India's success has been a success of brain power of skills in these industries, software, pharma, auto, and so on. It's difficult to think back to 1991 after so many decades of socialism. In order to get a landline, a telephone landline, it, it could take you two years. Mr. Narayan Murthy, head of one of India's biggest uh, computer companies, recalls it took him, I think, three years to get a license 
Uh, it took one year to get a license to import a computer and three years to get a landline. <laughs> that was the kind of problems you faced uh, back in the 1980s. That is the situation. Today, of course, landlines are going up begging, and India is now a land of one billion cell phones. There's talk of digital India where the uh, phone ownership will be more than 100%. E-commerce, in consequence, has exploded, and some of the biggest new Indian companies are in e-commerce. Going back to 1991, Indians were terrified of multinational corporations. They said, suppose you open up, do you know what will happen? These multinationals will come in, all Indian industry will be wiped out and become completely, either wiped out or become subsidiaries, subservient to multinational corporations. We'll see the deindustrialization of India. On the contrary, what's happened in the last 25 years, Indian companies have emerged as multinationals in their own right. Uh, famously, Mittal became the world's biggest steel company in the world. Tata uh, became, took over Jaguar Land Rover, turned it around when BMW and Ford had failed to earlier. So there are a large number of success stories. Uh, in a large number of areas, top Indian firms have 50 to 75% of their sales globally not in India. So Indian companies are no longer just making for India, but for the world. And that is an astonishing change. 138 million people were raised above the poverty line between 2004 and 2011. That is a remarkable performance. A large number of people used to say that, you know, all these reforms, they've created a thin layer of very rich people. It hasn't benefited the masses. But when the data came out, you found that this rate of poverty reduction really is a world record. In China, I remember, they reduced 220 million below the poverty line between 1778 and 2002, over a 20-year period. So India's reduction was much faster than in China. And again, when we looked into the details, for some of the poor minorities, like the Muslims, the Dalits, once called untouchables, for the tribals, for all these guys, the rate of po poverty fall was faster than the national average, showing that it did reach the bottom. It lifted all boats. Again, looking back to 1991, in those days, every time you had a drought, India would be dependent on food aid. You know, even if not for give us food. And in fact, if you go back, I became a journalist in 1965. We had back-to-back -back droughts in 1965 and 66. In consequence, all Indian economic life almost came to a halt. We were dependent entirely on American food aid, swallowing our food aid from everywhere in the world, to the point where Paddock and Paddock wrote a book called Famine 75, saying there isn't enough food aid for everybody. You should preserve food aid for countries that can be saved. India can't be saved and must be left to starve. I mean, that was the kind of situation you had when there were two droughts in a row in India. We just had a, two droughts in a row, last year and the year before. In this period, India remained a net food exporter and in fact became the world's largest exporter of rice, uh, overtaking Thailand. So, I mean, that is huge progress. Again, if you go back to 1991, there was talk of this population bomb, India's population growth rate, oh my gosh, these guys are breeding so much they won't be able to feed themselves. They can never prosper, they can't grow. Suddenly, 25 years later, we're told, hold everything. You have a demographic dividend. <laughs> all those guys, all those babies that were going all that fast, population growth, far from being a disadvantage, is actually an advantage. 
and that India is going to have a situation where I think between now and 2040, there are some estimates that the Indian workforce will increase by 280 million, even as the workforce will fall in China by 30 to 40 million. So even on the population side, we find a huge, uh, what was a historical disadvantage now becoming a major advantage. At the same time, social progress has been weak. This is the area basically of government work, and I'm afraid it has been a failure. Uh, Amartya Sen and Chandra has wrote a book recently, uh, An Uncertain Glory is what they called it. A good title, I think, An Uncertain Glory. That Indian health and educational indicators have been rising, yes, but they've been rising slower than in any other miracle economy that did 7% growth. India's position in the Human Development Index uh, has remained unchanged for almost two decades. We remain 120 to 130th position, definitely in the bottom two-thirds. Even worse, some of our poor neighbors like Bangladesh and Nepal have actually overtaken India in some of these indicators like child vaccination and so on. It's a disgrace. I mean, it shouldn't be like that. Uh, of course, India, as you can say, is dragged down by Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, two states in the middle. But nevertheless, that's not the whole of India. So without doubt, social progress has been weak. Uh, and the reason is clear, that we have had economic liberalization, yes, but government services are not liberalized, they are not reformed. There is no accountability from government staff. Whether a guy attends or not is entirely uncertain, there are no penalties. I said, once you've got a government job, you're doing the public a favor if you actually attend office uh, and do something. Uh, somebody once said, I said, it's called the civil service. It's neither civil nor delivers any service, uh, the condition of the Indian civil service. There is no accountability. Uh, the government trade unions are extremely powerful. Almost any chief minister who has tried to take them on has had to retreat later on. I mean, teachers, for instance, are notorious that they don't attend classes. At any one point of time, apparently less than 50% of uh, schools have any teaching going on. But when the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh tried to take these guys on, they said, we are going to go on strike at the time of the examinations. Now, if you do that, it means all the students had nothing and they miss a year. The chief minister had to immediately backpedal and withdraw. So, I mean... The terror of the civil service is something which has led to no accountability, no reform. Uh, in fact, it's got worse. There are a very large number of seats which are openly bought. Chief ministers are selling positions. Chief ministers are selling pro professorships in college. There are chief ministers who are even selling seats in some premier colleges. So it's a huge institutional erosion. Uh, the quality of institutions and of government services, both are abominable, I call it callous, tardy, corrupt, and lacking in expertise. Uh, so um, some serious problems out there. Uh, on the health side, we have very, very poor indicators indeed. I mean, Indian public health spending has been among the lowest in the world, a little over 1% of GDP. Uh, and even of that spending, if you look at what Lant Pritchett and others said. They say, you know, there's no accountability on the part of the primary health centers. If somebody takes half a day to go to primary health center, it may be closed. Or if there's somebody there, he may say, the only medicines available today are aspirin and vitamin B. So, I mean, what do you achieve through that particular thing? Uh, so we have a situation where almost 80% of Indians have anemia. There's probably some genetic factors at work out here. Uh, 
this may also be affecting the what's called Indian stunting. Uh, weight for age and uh, size for age uh, is among the lowest in the world, worse even than in several African countries with extremely low GDP issues. Arvind Panagati has raised the question whether this is a genetic matter. There may be something to it, but the fact is that with every generation, Indians are growing bigger and heavier. So it's not entirely genetic. But what is true, Dean Spears' uh, research showed that if there is open defecation, as is widespread in India, when that spreads those germs and you get uh, these gastro, gastro diseases, they prevent you from absorbing food. So even if you eat, you are not getting enough nutrition. So you know the real problem may be sanitation rather than food. Uh, all of these things are to be looked into, but I'm afraid public health is grossly neglected. What about reform itself? I mean, the Indian left will claim that, you know, India is suffering from because of neoliberalism. I say, no, I don't. it is neo-illiberalism. A new form of illiberalism has come to take over the old form that was there before 1991. The Heritage Foundation's uh, Index of Economic Freedom ranks India only 123rd or 178 countries. And as five degrees from free to unfree, India is rated mostly unfree. That is the extent of uh, economic freedom after 25 years of supposed reform. The Fraser Institute ranks India 114th of 157 countries. The Doing Business Report of the World Bank ranked India 142nd last year, improved to 130th. It's okay, 130th is better than 142nd, but it's still an abysmal position to be in after 25 years of reform. The old controls in the old days used to be in areas like industrial licenses, import licenses, foreign exchange allocations, and so on. There are new controls coming up constantly. Environment, health, land rights, natural resources, the way you phrase government contracts. Uh, and this is not an accident either. We have a political system which seems to require more and more money. So as I said, if some areas are completely liberalized and you can't ask for any kickbacks there, you have to have other areas where you can, in fact, raise these sums of money. Uh, India remains a place with insufficient respect for contracts or for property rights. You have the central and state government constantly, arbitrarily changing rules, changing contracts. I mean, just recently they interfered. I mean, Monsanto had contracts with a number of Indian seed companies on the amount of money to be paid for uh, trades on BT cotton, and the government arbitrarily put in controls between two sets of companies. The idea that it would somehow save farmers makes no difference. The change would have made perhaps 1% difference to the cost of cultivation. But there is this instinctive desire to interfere, uh, and property rights don't matter. So as I said, our problem is neoliberalism, not neoliberalism. Will Modi change things? Well, let's see. Uh, the last UPA government, there was a huge backlash against mass corruption and cronyism. Activists took to the streets. The Supreme Court intervened. The Controller and uh, Auditor General came forward with a series of reports on how huge sums of public money were being lost through discretionary allotments of things like spectrum and coal blocks rather than open auctions. So uh, the backlash against that corruption then created paralysis in governance. Uh, all projects got stuck, nobody wanted to take a decision, and that led to the fall of the last government. Modi came in two years ago, and this much can be said for him that he has ended big corruption. He certainly hasn't ended petty corruption of officials, nor has he ended corruption at the state government level. He cannot do that, it's beyond his power. 
big corruption has ended, that's a positive. Many of the old projects that were stuck are moving forward. But having moving forward, there are signs of sticking again. There is still a lot of work to be done. Uh, the Supreme Court had ordered the auction of various things instead of discretionary allotment. And because of that, Modi was inspired to pass a new law on minerals, <coughs> mandating that these things will no longer be allotted by ministerial discretion, that they will be auctions. So that's now permanent. It's good. There was an old so-called social contract of, you know, you can do business in India, but only after paying off. Now they said, no, you can even do business without paying off. Has Modi been a radical changer? No. Some people took him at face value when he said, I believe in small government, maximum governance. Well, that was just an election slogan. He's an incrementalist. Bit by bit, he builds a little here, a little here, a little there. He has taken many old Congress programs and renamed them and claimed them for himself. Uh, some of these things include you know, bank accounts for everybody, all villages, identity cards for everybody, cash transfers rather than uh, subsidies for products. Various of these, and they're good. And it's, I think that's a positive way to go, that the old government wasn't all bad. Some programs were in the right direction, so let's build on them. Uh, but he has not implemented more radical pledges. He had said he, the ports would be corporatized, railways would become corporations with public shareholding and more scrutiny. None of that has happened. Uh, once again, they are afraid of the trade unions. And you may not know this, although the BJP supposedly is a right-wing party, it controls the biggest trade union in India, <laughs> the Bharti Masdur Sangh. So India is a peculiar country where all the parties are labor parties. <laughs> So some structural changes, yes, big corruption and cronyism is down. There have been some serious moves to improve the ease of business. So India's, uh, Modi says that from 130th position in the World Bank Index, we should go to 50th position. Uh, it, there's no way it's going to happen by the time his term ends. Uh, but it's the right direction. Certain amount of fiscal reform, positive. They are moving in the direction of cash transfers. Uh, they have ended a number of oil subsidies, uh, certainly on diesel. It's gone down substantially on kerosene. It's gone down substantially on cooking gas. All of this will ease fiscal strains and uh, make the macro conditions better. A number of e-governance initiatives have taken place. That is the best way. I mean, if you can do things online and you don't have to go to a government official, obviously things are faster and you can't be asked for money. So things improve. Uh, on the startup side, there's been a transformation. There was a time when old money was the only big money. Today, all kinds of newcomers are coming up and raising huge sums of money, especially on e-commerce uh, and in the social media. So it's a good start. It means that you know, India is not going to have Pakistan's problem of only 22 families running everything. The new family is coming up every day. And there's been some easing of foreign investment rules. Uh, Bit by bit, nothing, nothing that radical, but on the import side, India is still instinctively protectionist. India is still the country that I think has the largest number of anti-dumping cases under WTO rules being contested in the WTO. Uh, weak governance and institutions. Uh, police judicial reform is a, truly a third-rate institution. The police have no powers and skills and the courts are worse. We have a backlog of 31 million court cases, and this is a world record which we really would rather not hold at all. Uh, the police strength is about half the UN norm, and they are corrupt and they are politicized. 
If you look at the courts, the court strength, again, is about half of the norm. And out of those, I think the judicial vacancies unfilled range from 17% to 44% at different levels of the judiciary. And there are accusations of corruption within the judiciary all the way up to the Supreme Court. The end result is that we have little justice or contract enforcement. Lawbreakers thrive everywhere because, you know, the chances are, given the law's delay, that uh, you will die of old age before you're actually convicted of anything. And if lawbreakers thrive, this erodes all institutions. The rise of law, it erodes politics, business, the bureaucracy, the courts, education. Uh, in the latest uh, Lok Sabha, uh, Lok House of Parliament, 186 of 543 members of parliament have criminal records. And this particular ratio keeps rising every single election. It's not getting better. Government services are terrible whether they be in education, health, infrastructure, an unsackable civil service, uh, there has been no significant administrative reform. There's been talked about Manmohan Singh, I remember set up committee after committee, and absolutely nothing happened. There is no political urge to do so. Expertise is scarce everywhere. I mean, once upon a time, India was a poor backward country. Now you're getting more sophisticated. You require much higher level of skills in every ministry and in every state. You don't have it. So India needs outside experts. Instead, I mean, we have a situation where Raghuram Rajan went, became uh, our Reserve Bank governor and was attacked that you're not Indian enough, you got your green card holder. And just today, that same uh, BJP member of parliament has attacked Arvind Subramanian, chief economic advisor, saying, you know, green, you green card holders, what are you? I am a green card holder, so apparently I am unfit to write for the Times of India according to this ultra-nationalist line of thinking, and I mean, this is a sad state of affairs. Uh, the number of subsidies, the number of things that are free, waste in government service remains high. I just covered the state election in Tamil Nadu a month or so ago, and here you had Jay Lalitha who got re-elected, and you know, there's free television sets and free mixer grinders and free laptops for students and subsidized goats and then there are subsidized cows and there are subsidized sanitary kits and subsidized kitchens. I mean, it, the, it goes on and on and on. Uh, so we are certainly not in minimum government in any sense, especially in the state governments. Uh, there is no decentralization yet to the districts, to the cities and the villages. Power remains highly concentrated in state capitals. Uh, increasingly, we are getting political appointees rather than experts in all the institutions, as I mentioned earlier, and this includes the state government. It's not just a question of New Delhi. And there are social tensions, there are fearful Muslims, fearful Christians, and for growth, we really do need more social harmony. Okay, so where does this take us to India's position in the world? Now, I think one big thing is that India has proved that democracy can also produce miracle economy. If you go back to the original set of the four Asian tigers and the other, they all said all these guys are autocracies or military regimes or semi-autocracies, and you really can't grow fast if you have a democracy, too many checks, too many balances. For India to be, therefore to be growing at 8% proves that even if you're a democracy and even if you're a large country, you can be a miracle economy. And this helps make India a kind of role model which the United States now finds useful to be able to promote. Earlier you couldn't you, you couldn't use uh, democracy as a successful economic model, now you can. Again, India has 180 million Muslims, but ve very little Islamic terror. 
maybe I'm speaking too early. Uh, it may happen, but so far, so good. India has been called a potential superpower by a large number of media people and by a large number of politicians. It is seen as the only credible check in Asia on China in the 21st century. Because of this, India got a special nuclear deal from the United States, which Ashley Tellis helped to, to promote, if you remember, back in 1985. And Obama has backed India for a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. Uh, and there are now various defense deals on the table. But the idea that you know India is going to become a potential superpower, I'd simply say, please don't exaggerate. India remains a poor country. Our GDP is barely one-sixth of China's. India is unable to check internal violence. I mean, we have Maoist uprisings or some kind or the other, or a serious kind in 79 districts out of 600. Serious. There are human rights abuses all over the place, especially in the state of Kashmir, where there is a Muslim uh, majority which is chafing against uh, Indian rule. Uh, so a country that can't even check internal violence shouldn't be thinking of military adventures. A country with weak governance institutions, in fact, I mean, India can't check even, it's, it's, not, it's not even a regional power. It can't really impose its will on Pakistan, let alone China. So, I mean, the notion that India should join hands and get into various military adventures with the United States, I think is absolutely crazy. Uh, we, uh, we, we'd best tame the violence within our country than look for outside. So can India be a global power? Well, it's achieved a lot so far, but frankly, it's not sustainable. As I said, it's been mostly private sector success, but government failure and institutional erosion. India needs deeper economic reforms to check neoliberalism. India needs effective governance and decentralization. And India needs strong, independent institutions. Uh, Asim Muglu and uh, Robinson wrote this book called Why Nations Fail, a very good book, pointing out that if you want to go from a middle income to a high income country, you have to develop large scale institutional strength. India is nowhere near that. If it wants to become a global power, it will have to have institutions of high quality. Thank you. Thanks very much, Swami. Our next speaker is Ashley Tellis, who is a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. From 2001 to 2003, he served as a senior advisor at the US Embassy in New Delhi. And he has also served on the National Security Council uh, as a special assistant to the president. He's an expert in nonproliferation and US foreign policy and national security and in South Asia and countries in South Asia. He has also been a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation and a professor of policy analysis at the RAND Graduate School. As Swami mentioned, he was one of the principal uh, proponents of the nuclear deal with, with India. And he is the author of the book, India's Emerging Nuclear Power. Please help me welcome Dr. Tellis. Well, thank you, Ian, and thank you, Swami, for inviting me to share the podium with you uh, on the, at this event, which attempts to sort of reflect on uh, 25 years of economic reform in India. Uh, the subject is obviously important for two reasons, because what is happening in India is part of a larger transformation of shift in power from west to east, but also a shift in power within Asia itself. 
And if India can sustain the kind of growth rates it has demonstrated in recent years, then one can, one can uh, contemplate the possibility that over time India could become uh, a significant center of power in Asia alongside China and Japan uh, and perhaps others, uh, depending on how the evolution of the Asian economic space proceeds. And the fact that all this has occurred in the last 25 years should give us at least some, some opportunities for, for reflection, if not celebration. And I would argue, as, as uh, Swami uh, pointed out, that much has been achieved, of course, in India in the last 25 years. And the changes have been quite dramatic. What he asked me to uh, speak about today was the foreign policy impact. And so I thought it would be useful to uh, offer some thoughts on how Indian foreign policy, too, has changed very dramatically in the last 25 years. And so I want to title my reflections uh, this afternoon as the foreign policy impact of a revolution that is half begun. And it's a revolution half begun precisely for all the reasons that were on, on Swami's slides. Great achievements on one hand, but a lot of unfinished business. And the hope is that the forces that have now been put into play will bring India to the culmination of this revolution, which is a progressive liberalization, not simply of its private sector, but of its economy, of its polity, of its systems of governance, and so on and so forth. Let me go take you back to 1991, because when we think about India, we reflect about the economic transformation. Uh, that was brought about by uh, Prime Minister Narasimha Rao and his finance minister, uh, Manmohan Singh. But 1991 was also important for another reason. In fact, it was a world-shattering reason. It represented the year when the international system, which was defined by bipolarity since the end of the Second World War, uh, actually came to an end. And so there was a fundamental structural change in the international system in 1991. And the consequence of that structural change in the international system actually ended up in destroying the fundamental foundations of India's foreign policy, the foreign policy that it pursued since independence, which was essentially hinged on the twin pillars of non-alignment and third world solidarity. The logic of non-alignment and third world solidarity was robust so long as there was a superpower antagonism uh, that allowed uh, states to choose not to part participate in the competition. And the whole logic of third world solidarity at various points uh, received support from the fact that, that one or the other superpower essentially ended up supporting India at various points between 1947 and 1991. Not because they had a particular affection for India, but because India was useful in terms of achieving their own geopolitical objectives in the competition with the other. And so the whole fundamental framework on which Indian foreign policy was based between 47 and 91 was one of sitting aside from the conflicts that were taking place essentially over its head. 1991, when the Soviet Union collapses, that strategy essentially had come to an end because non-alignment formally and substantively speaking, did not make too much sense in a world where there was no superpower rivalry. And when the Soviet Union in particular, which was India's great power protector from 1971 onwards, had essentially ceased to exist. And so it confronted India not simply 
with the demand for fundamental economic transformation because of the economic crisis in 1991, which Swami described both in terms of its aftermath and in terms of the precipitance. But it also confronted India with the need to devise a new foreign policy, a new grand strategy, as it were, to cope with this new world, where essentially there was one standing power, the United States. And that moment in 1991 essentially forced Indian decision makers to move in an entirely new direction that was simply impossible to anticipate if you had asked anyone just the year before. It forced India for the first time to actually make fundamental changes both in its economy and in its foreign policy. And the economic changes that Swami described which slowly led to India settling on a trajectory of faster growth relative to its historical record, also opened opportunities to sustain the new foreign policy that it has slowly begun to put in place since 1971. So if you were to think of the foreign policy transitions from 1991 onwards, I think it would be useful to characterize India as essentially being an irrelevant power prior to 1991 in the global geopolitical system to slowly acquiring the capacity to becoming a balancing power. It's not yet what it wants to be, which is a true great power in the international system. A true great power in the international system is a power that essentially makes the rules. It's a system maker. Others follow rules that are put in place by the great powers of the day. India is today a system shaper. It can shape outcomes on the margins. It can engage with great powers to reach certain solutions that advance its own interests. But for all the reasons that Swami described, it's not yet at the point where it is a system maker. But having said that, being a system shaper is far better than being a system taker, which is what India was prior to 1991, where its capacity to influence outcomes in the global system were essentially close to minimal. And the only time it could shape those outcomes was when it formally allied with one of the prevailing great powers of the day. Today, India, thanks to the economic revolution that has slowly unfolded since 1991, Today, India finds itself in a position where it has much greater geopolitical economy, much greater freedom to make its own choices and to produce outcomes, even against the opposition of other countries, in ways that it simply did not have the capacity to do before 1991. And so when you think of Indian foreign policy, you really see the current moment as a moment where India is between the times. Between the past, when it was a system taker, and between that future that sort of beckons, where it could become a system maker, if it follows the advice that Swami and others have offered Indian policymakers in a sustained fashion for years to come. So at the moment, India is at that phase where it has autonomy, but not too much, certainly not as much as the great powers of the day have. But it is not simply an abject subject which copes, which is compelled to cope with the actions of others, 
without any agency, without any freedom of its own. So that's the moment where India is. So what is India's foreign policy today and how has it changed? I think it has changed because today India is moved away from a foreign policy that focused fundamentally on preventing the external world from imposing constraints on India to now a foreign policy that is directed increasingly towards molding the environment in ways that enhance India's own interests. And that is a profound transformation. Until 1991, India's foreign policy was essentially a fundamentally defensive foreign policy. It was a foreign policy that was aimed at preventing great powers, neighbors, or any other state from imposing constraints on India's freedom of action. And this is not a surprising foreign policy for a weak country. But as India has grown in capacity, it has become much less defensive, though the, the defensiveness has not entirely obliterated. But it is moving in the direction where it seeks to shape the world, even if it is only on the margins for now, in ways that can advance its own interests. All this is done because India, looking forward, faces a challenge that it has never faced before historically. For the first time, in probably the three to 5,000 years of India's history, India now confronts the prospect of having a genuine global superpower at its doorstep, and that is China. This, of course, should not be read or heard as presuming that China's ascent to superpower status is a given. It's by no means that. China has enough problems of its own. And if we were making a presentation on China, we could do something quite analogous to what Swami did for India. But there is a, at least an even possibility that in the decades to come, China will become a major international player of consequence that approximates the capabilities of a superpower. And if that comes to pass, then India is going to face a strategic challenge of the kind that historically it has never had to do, which is cope with a superpower at its doorstep with whom it has geopolitical rivalry, disputed borders, uh, contested ideology, and an alternative, and, an alternative universality. And so the stage is now set, and India is preparing for what it sees as this long-run challenge from China. And the focus of Indian foreign policy, its grand strategy, is really driven in, in, in ways that will help it cope with this emerging challenge. And when I talk of an emerging challenge, I'm not talking of something that is simply military. I'm talking of a challenge that is far more comprehensive. And so the Indian strategy for dealing with this challenge is also multifaceted. It emphasizes heavily internal balancing, that is building up India's own uh, national capacities. It emphasizes enjoying the fruits of interdependence, including interdependence with China, because that serves as a limiting constraint on China's ability to misuse its power. And above all, it increasingly focuses on ways to solicit and entice American assistance in aiding India to reach its geopolitical goals. In other words, the focus of Indian foreign policy today and into the future is going to be 
an effort to build up India as an alternative center of power in Asia. This foreign policy, which has been slowly uh, unveiled uh, since 1991, has five basic components. And I want to just run through those quickly to give you a sense of how foreign policy and grand strategy in India have transformed since 91. The first and most important change is really that, is that India today puts a premium on mobilizing national power in a way that it did not do before. Indians have become extremely conscientious about the importance and the imperative of economic growth, not simply to achieve developmental goals, but equally because of their strategic consequences. So India today is growth obsessed in a way that it historically never was. And while it still has a ways to go, and Swami's briefing laid that out very, uh, very, with great clarity, the fact remains that Indians today are more conscious than ever about the limits of their policies and the need to reform them. So mobilizing national power through internal balancing has really been the great uh, resuscitation of the foundation post-91. Economic growth, the development of nuclear weapons, and the investment in a capable military that will do more than just frontier defense. In a nutshell, this is really what the mobilization of national power post-1991 has done. So that's point number one. Point number two, India has made a renewed effort to recast its foreign relations, especially its relations with key power centers in the global system. And there are several dimensions to this. The immediate challenge that India has paid a great deal of attention to is getting the neighborhood right. India recognizes that if it wants to become that alternative center of power in Asia, it cannot do so if it is constrained essentially by internal adversities and local challenges to its own primacy. And so successive prime ministers have really made the effort to engage with India's neighbors, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, primarily through instruments of economics, for example, trade, but equally through geopolitical engagement as well. In almost every case, they've made a special effort to resolve border disputes that have held the renewal of these relationships back. And wherever possible, they have tried to be magnanimous uh, in, in enticing these countries to work with India on terms that sometimes are not always favorable to India itself. But the reason for doing this is precisely because India wants the South Asian region to become a bastion of stability that elevates, that enables India to then focus its attentions elsewhere, rather than a region that constantly distracts India from its wider extra-regional and global ambitions. The second dimension of, that, of its foreign policy that has been very interesting since 91 is the emphasis on protecting the flanks. And this is really a foreign policy that goes back now uh, to the days of the Raj. And what India has done is that it has moved quite smartly in three directions simultaneously. A very conscientious effort to act east, to engage the eastern flanks, particularly Southeast Asia, all the way to Japan in Northeast Asia. An effort to link west, to build ties simultaneously with Iran and Saudi Arabia, so the Shia, the Shia and the Sunni worlds and the greater Middle East, and an effort to surge south to really make investments in the wider Indian Ocean region, 
where India, with American encouragement, is now viewed as essentially the security provider first resort. In other words, India is beginning to not simply consolidate peace and stability in the neighborhood, although the challenges here are still great, but to try and shape the wider geographic environment in which the South Asian region finds itself. And third, it's moved much further afield to set right uh, critical relations with the most important power in the global system, the United States, while doing a wonderful balancing act of managing the transition in its relations with Russia, which have now changed from the, uh, the days of uh, India-USSR fraternity to something that is more commercial and straightforwardly business-oriented. Also, keeping the relationship with China in good repair as it manages its relations with Russia and the United States. And continuing to build ties with the important technological centers like Japan, like Europe, uh, uh, like uh, the Federal Republic of Germany, um, uh, France, the United Kingdom, and Israel. So you see an omnidirectional engagement that India is pursuing precisely because it wants to now use the international system in very direct uh, and formal ways to advance its own interests. Third, this is the third thrust of Indian strategy since 91, has been to now directly challenge the international system to provide it a seat in the institutions of rulemaking. And so India is not content anymore to simply be a bystander. It wants to be at the high table where it becomes part of the rulemaking institutions and in fact demands a seat in those rulemaking institutions. The civilian nuclear accord that the United States and India agreed to uh, in 2005 has opened the door now for India to become a member of all the global non-proliferation regimes. The United States today has endorsed India's uh, claim to permanent membership in the UN Security Council. And in the next few years, it's not unreasonable to hope that India will join uh, APEC or would uh, be admitted to the International Energy Agency, depending on how uh, the rules are adjusted to accommodate such changes. So you're beginning to see an India that is moving beyond simply material changes in policy to also making certain that its changes are reflected in terms of institutional representation. Fourth, uh, the effort to uh, collaborate to produce global public goods. India, as, uh, as uh, Swami pointed out, is now taking baby steps towards providing international aid. It's taking baby steps towards becoming a provider for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief throughout the Indian Ocean region. And it has collaborated with the international community with respect to adjusting to the ravages of climate change and space. And fifth and last, the effort that India has made very dramatically since 91 to promote its soft power. Building institutions of democracy. A great example is the efforts being made now in Afghanistan. The efforts to promote soft power through the promulgation of an international yoga day or the uh, effort to promote Bollywood as a symbolic carrier of, of Indian culture, and the efforts made by successive governments to reach out to the diaspora. 
So when you look at the trajectory of Indian foreign policy since 91, you begin to see a quite dramatic shift compared to the passivity and compared to the defensiveness of the years, uh, of the decades before. This journey is by no means at an end. And it is by no means complete. But if India has to complete this process in a way that it seeks, then it will have to complete the three things that, uh, that Swami flagged uh, very uh, clearly in his presentation. It'll have to find a way of making certain that its trend growth rates remain high for a very extended period of time. So 7% growth can't be peak growth. It has to become the floor for India. It has to build up the capacity of the state because the Indian state, as Swami pointed out, is still a very tattered institution. And finally, it has to in increase the levels of rationalization, both in Indian society and in Indian institutions. This is work for the future. But if one looks at the last 25 years, I think there is a reason for cautious optimism. Because if India could, with great uh, constraints and under the pressures of a democracy, achieved what it has so far, then I believe the United States is correct to bet on the fact that India will be a success and to help it become a success to achieve both Indian geopolitical objectives and our own. Thank you. Thanks very much. We now have time for questions. If you have a question, raise your hand, and uh, I'll call on you and wait for the microphone. And when, when it arrives, please do identify yourself and your affiliation, please. We'll start right, right there. Right there. Hi, great presentations. My name is Sanjeev Joshipura, and I work with Indiaspora, where we are, it's an organization where we are on our way to becoming the Davos of the global elites interested in India specifically. Uh, my question is for Ashley primarily, but happy to obviously have Swami comment if he has any other comments. Uh, would you mind commenting on India's burgeoning relationship with Israel, specifically in the context of India's relationship now with the United States, which, as you pointed out, is much, much closer than it ever was before? Uh, you know, there was a time, as you well know, that India didn't even diplomatically recognize Israel, so they were almost worse than being antagonistic. But now, they're increasingly getting closer, especially in technology and defense and so forth. So would you mind commenting on that? Thank you. Yeah. It's on. Thanks, Sanjeev. Uh, that's actually a very interesting case, and is, it could actually be the, the headline case uh, for the transformations in Indian foreign policy post-91. As you mentioned, India assiduously refused to have relations with Israel because since 47, it had cast its lot, essentially with the Arab cause, under the rubric of third world solidarity. After 91, India began to realize that it could pursue its own interests without compromising its support for the Palestinian cause. And upon the recognition that Israel had far more uh, to provide India in very tangible terms, uh, than the Arabs could as the world was changing. And so uh, since 91, uh, India has uh, established formal diplomatic relations with Israel, obviously. Uh, Israel today is probably the third most important supplier of defense equipment uh, to India, 
And because India has a lot of legacy Soviet military equipment that cannot be serviced and modernized uh, by the Russians today, the Israelis have provided an important bridging capability with respect to modernizing that equipment. So India is walking a very interesting line in terms of its engagement with Israel. Uh, there is a lot that is taking place in Israeli-India relations under the surface. Uh, then even the Indians feel comfortable admitting. But uh, India sees Israel today as essentially its principal partner in the greater Middle East for all the reasons I just laid out. So I, I think that sums it up. I think it was also, the process was also aided by the fact that uh, uh, you had that agreement uh, 1993, if I remember right, on uh, creation of a separate Palestine. I mean, that made it possible for India to say, okay, now, you know, we will deal with both sides. And as it, it was, a, I don't think it could have been anticipated that Israel's military capacity and willingness to part with technology would make it such a large supplier to India. That has turned out to be the case, and that has been the fulcrum of it. So the rise of Israel as a high-tech state with these capabilities and the 1993 agreement, both of them have transformed. I mean, India still wants to be friendly with both sides. But clearly, uh, the Israel today has more to offer India, whereas back in 1991, the relationship with the oil countries, it, it seemed at that time that they had much more to offer India. That has changed. Question right there. Yep. Um, thank you, Amar Bhattacharya from Brookings. Um, so I wanted to uh, pitch the optimism that uh, uh, you laid out, uh, particularly uh, with growth now being a strategic objective, and you know, ask both of you whether that objective will, in some sense, arrest the deep-seated governance uh, and, uh, uh, and institutional weaknesses. Because the, the, the cause that you mentioned uh, really is, uh, is led by a few, not held by the many in, in, in India. And the other question I had for Swami is one of the, you know, in your, in your very broad and very compelling panorama, uh, one set of institutions you did not talk about are banks. Uh, where India is quite different than most countries, and where banks, I would argue, have been an important instrument for the malgovernance that you mentioned. Uh, just today, Raghuram Rajan talked about bad debts, but what he was actually talking about was bad governance in bad banks. So I'd like to, you know, if, if you could comment on those two. Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, Modi is one of the few who's actually thought in terms of institutional terms is holding back the rate of growth. If you look at the previous UPA government, it more or less took growth for granted and said the thing is, how do we now distribute the goodies among various people? So the entire emphasis was on distribution. Uh, growth was more or less taken as a given. That very clearly is no longer the case. It's also become clear that you know the, when the growth fell, growth fell because of institutional weaknesses, because of corruption, because of the cronyism, because of the lack of... Uh, credibility of the government, and you got a situation where there was a rebellion from some of the institutions. The controller and auditor general, who had just been an auditor of books, suddenly began to say, you know, the way you are conducting your business uh, is, is a scandal. 
the Supreme Court began to intervene in the executive area in all kinds of ways, like saying, you know, you guys are just allowing illegal iron ore mining on such a massive scale. Uh, we are going to, and, and Supreme Court stopped all iron ore mining anywhere and said case by case we'll do it. So, you know, the institutional failure uh, uh, was very clear under the Congress party. There are steps being taken by Modi to change that, but he's going slowly. Uh, he's going slowly partly because he's not a radical reformer, partly because we have a, India is not ruled by prime ministers, India is ruled by chief ministers. Even in terms of government spending, 62% of government spending is now by the chief ministers, only 38% at the central level. And this power balance has been shifting gradually. So yes, uh, institutional weakness needs to be tackled. But as I said, it's not just what happens in New Delhi. State governments need to participate in this. Within that, you said, you know, on the weak institutions, what about the banks? Uh, the banks are an area where I said it's incrementalism. Uh, when Finance Minister Jetley came here for a press conference some time ago, and he said, you know, I asked him when will, he said, what do you mean by big bank? I said, well, for a start, why don't you just privatize the 10 worst government banks? India is completely outlier in the sense that government banks account for 70% of all credit. In other countries, it's 10%, 20%, 30%. But for 70% of bank credit to be controlled by the government is almost unprecedented in any kind of country that needs to be taken seriously. But what was Mr. Jetley's reply? <laughs> he said, you know, uh, banks are very convenient for carrying out various things. They have this program of trying to open an account for everybody. Uh, no matter what the cost. And he said, I can order the government backs, I can't offer these guys. Again, he says, I want to have a huge boom in infrastructure. And these private sector banks, you know, they're not very keen. They ask things like viability and how did you award the contract? <laughs> Whereas I can order the government banks, you just go and finance those guys, which is what they did and which is why those government banks are now saddled with those huge bad debts. So the thing is in a mess. Now, as I said, the easiest thing to say is you shouldn't have got into this particular hole. To get out of that hole, you have to balance the needs between, you know, you need to have a functioning banking system. There has to be ways of forgiveness. We have got to the stage today where because of the anti-corruption backlash, if you offer a settlement and say, okay, we will write this off, we will write that off and start again, it's become impossible to say that. If you say that, there'll be corruption, somebody will go with a public interest suit to the courts, and everything gets held up. So we need an institutional change, on the one hand, where it is possible for all the banks to be independent. That probably requires privatization. But an independent banks which can say, I am not going to give this loan merely because you're a pal of the finance minister or because you're a pal of that particular chief minister. Secondly, when things are going wrong, I will take over your assets at an early stage and try and get rid of them. But frankly, this would require reform of the courts. If you do not have quick legal decisions, then an attempt of, by a bank to possess, to take over the assets and sell them, gets stalled by the courts and everything comes. So I said, we need the courts to improve, we need uh, the banks to be privatized, and we need to have a new situation where politicians and institutions are able to take decisions without cries of corruption and lawsuits that follow. So it's a huge amount of change. Uh, it can't be done overnight, but this is one of our major challenges, yes. I, make, I just want to make three quick points to the question you asked, which I think is very important. Uh, first, there is no automatic carryover from growth to good governance. I mean, so 
people should not assume that simply because India continues to grow, it will over time inevitably translate into good governance. Uh, that's a cautionary note. Uh, two, the hopeful sign is that a lot of the demand for good governance now is sort of demand-driven. The Indian population is demanding good governance. And so this becomes a good that has to be produced. And that's really important. Uh, and it, again, it's one of the benefits of sustained growth over you know, many, many years. So second point. The third point is that to address and to attack the issues of misgovernance, that has to be done consciously. You need to have a conscious effort made there. And one must not presume it's going to be easy because the biggest enemy of good governance is essentially democratic politics. Because the moment you have democratic politics, the temptation in the political class is to use institutions for short-term political goals without thinking about the need to maintain the viability of those institutions for long-term national interest. And so you really need to, in a sense, change the mindset of uh, the political elites with respect to the choices they make uh, in terms of public appointments, in terms of filling in positions, and so on and so forth. So this is going to be a long fight that is going to engage state-society relations in a serious way uh, you know, in the years to come. We'll take a question right there. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I have a question to Mr. Tallis. Uh, I like your comments on. Could you India. identify yourself, please? Oh, sorry, uh, Ina with the West of America. I have a question to Mr. Tallis. I think you. Uh, I like your comments on India as a balancing power. Uh, so I want to know what is India's position on South China Sea issues. Uh, I know. Uh, previously, not too long ago, the United States has invited India to join patrol of South China Sea, and India apparently uh, uh, reject the idea. So uh, the ruling is upcoming very soon, so I want to know what is India's position on South China Sea dispute. Thank you. Well, India's position, as I understand it, is that the South China Sea represents international waters, and all the claimants in the South China Sea should respect the international freedoms of navigation. I mean, I'll, I'll just add that, you know, India has agreements with Vietnam on offshore drilling. And the question arose, if this is China claims this to be its area, will India retreat on this front? No, India reaffirmed its intention to go ahead with that. And so, therefore, that is a clear indication that, you know, India is not going to indulge in any military adventures. But yes, we do regard these international waters, and we do say that China doesn't automatically own the rights on the sea or underneath. Let's take a question from right here. Thank you. My name is Jan Bates. I'm just a private citizen. Um, my question is, uh, I have two questions. The first is, how willing are Indian citizens to pay their taxes, given the state of governance? And the second question is, what role does the private sector play in education, health, and, and welfare? Well, primary education and health is actually the job of the government. Uh, it should either be actually providing the services or funding the private sector to do it. That isn't a complete mess. Uh, India's educational spending as a percentage of GDP, something like 3.5% of GDP going up a little. But what is the point of spending money if you have a situation where government teachers are getting on average five times as much as private sector teachers? 
And yet with all those incentives, they aren't in school and they aren't teaching. So in desperation, poor Indians are pulling their children out of free government schools and putting them in paid private sector schools. Unfortunately, the quality of the private sector schools is not very much better. Uh, they're using all kinds of guys who are not really qualified. Uh, so you may say that the outcomes are slightly better and at a much lower cost. And yet from a national point of view, there's an enormous waste. Uh, we have a situation at the top level, for instance, uh, the government coll engineering colleges initially produced the IITs back. If you go back to 1991, I think we were producing about 50,000 engineers a year. Now with the private sector colleges exploding, it's 1.5 million <laughs> engineering seats a year. And 90% of the guys, companies say, are unemployable. <laughs> so you get this enormous private sector explosion, and yet you don't have the quality to match it. There are no campuses, there are, there are no staff. So there is a very, very serious problem. At the end of it all, this problem cannot be solved by the private sector. The government would at the very least have to come in with funding. You either require an extensive voucher system whereby the government provides the finance while the private sector provides a larger amount of the skills. And I think you would need decentralization that if power is given to every village and every town to discipline the teachers and to control their salaries, that decentralization of power will then bring about some discipline. I remember I asked in the state of Kerala, the most educated one, I said, you know, at least in your state, you're supposed to have these powerful decentralized bodies. Do they have the power to discipline teachers? The man said, sorry. Ah, he said, but they do have the power now to discipline veterinary surgeons. <laughs> so I said, hooray, animals have more rights than students in Kerala. Okay, we'll take a question in this right there, Anne, please. Yeah. My name is Anne Krieger, and I'm at Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, two questions. Uh, the first is whether, and I'm Swami primarily, uh, the first question is really whether Mr. Modi is, in some sense, the, the, the kind of slow incremental liberalizer, or whether instead he believes in making the controls more efficient. My impression is that he's much more concerned with keeping controls and keeping them efficient than he is with removing them. And second question is uh, why, if he's so interested in foreign investment and all that, did he not renew Governor Rajan's term before Governor Rajan gave up? Sorry, I didn't get the second one. The second, what, why didn't he remove uh, the governor? Rajan's. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yes, as far as the controls are concerned, uh, Modi ran the state of Gujarat for 15 years at a time when all these other controls were already in there. And he was able to do a good job. He was able to have a flourishing state. He, he also believed rather, rather than privatize in Gujarat, uh, he, had, he turned around the public sector state-owned institutions and ran them better. So uh, he was not somebody who thought that radical change is necessary to have substantial economic growth or governance. That became very clear from his own experience as chief minister for almost 15 years. He has brought the same approach. Uh, you are right in saying that he does not believe in extensive, extensive deregulation. He certainly says that, you know, let's improve things. Uh, there is, so far, there has been no privatization. He has gone to the extent of appointing somebody who is now producing a list of companies for privatization, and they are the smallest, most irrelevant ones which have no strategic value of any kind. So strategically, he's an incrementalist, yes. Uh, as far as uh, Rajan is concerned, it's not quite clear what happened. 
But what's clear is that Rajan was a strong, independent governor who had no inhibitions about speaking his own mind. He had no inhibition about saying that I think the government data on fast growth could well be wrong. He had no difficulty in saying that, you know, let's not exaggerate the kind of growth that we are having. Uh, he was willing to crack down on cronyism and bank loans in much stronger terms than any Reserve Bank governor ever has done before. So for all these things, he was seen as an inconvenience. But I would have to add that there were also plenty of perfectly serious economists who said Rajan's policies are wrong. They said, Rajan, they said in a country like India, you should not be having a single-minded focus only on inflation. You need to look into growth. And they claimed that these, he's keeping interest rates so high that it's killing business, especially commodity producers, a thing like steel and so on, where they had this huge competition. And secondly, the exchange rate, he refused to intervene uh, where the market was taking it. And because of large inflows of money from overseas Indians and foreign investment, the rupee became stronger than it might otherwise have done. And there were lots of people who said, look, you must depreciate the rupee. Our exports have fallen 17 months in a row. Now, Rajan, on the independence thing, he was very, very clear, I'm going to be independent. On the economic side, he said, well, if you're the fastest growing economy in the world, please don't tell me my interest rates are too high. You know, I'm, clearly I'm not killing growth. As for the current account deficit, he says it has, it's almost in balance. I don't have a large current account deficit, so don't tell me the rupee is overvalued. But critics said, you got it wrong. I mean, uh, if exports are falling, this has all kinds of knock. So I said there were serious reasons to disagree with Raja. But as far as I can see, the personal attacks on him of Subramanian Swami, of you're not mentally Indian, you've got a green card. I mean, these were very unfortunate. I think a signal has also gone out that, you know, a large number of political appointments are now of guys who are yes men. They are politically convenient people. They're very often people with very weak expertise. So it is worrying on the question of independence and institutional strength. Uh, if somebody like Arvind Subramanian is appointed, okay, it would be a signal that, hey, Subramanian Swami, you shut up. Even if this guy has a green card, he can become Reserve Banker. We need to send out some signals like that. We need to have an improvement of, say, and, you know, and the guy should be given at least a five-year term. Giving people terms for two and a half years, three years. It's not enough to transform a banking system. Uh, you need longer tenure, and that longer tenure also increases independence. That's the way you need to go. Let's see what happens. Okay. Uh, yep, right there. Question right there. Whoops. Well, you'll take it too. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Mohammed Mujib. I work with the World Justice Project. Uh, my first question is to Mr. Ayer. Uh, Would you speak up, speak up a little bit, please? Uh, my first question goes to Mr. Ayer. Um, how do you see um, India's uh, relations in the foreseeable future with Pakistan? And how do you, do, don't you think that its economic relations outweighs its uh, uh, political antagonism with uh, India or India's with Pakistan? And uh, in case uh, there is an improvement between India and Pakistan, how do you see its relations with Afghanistan, uh, given that uh, Pakistan has been against uh, uh, India's presence or uh, good relations with Afghanistan uh, in the past few years? Thank you. Uh, actually, you want to take that one? No. No, no, okay, since you asked me, so, uh, let, let me come up because 
India has a long-term problem with Pakistan, which has not changed. Uh, every Indian prime minister tends to make some peace overtures, and then you meet, and then, I mean, there are guys on both sides who don't want peace talks or don't want things to go ahead. And, you know, there'll be a hijacking, there'll be a bomb explosion here. And in the case of India, there was an attack by various Pakistanis on Pathan court, uh, while the, officially they denied. But the answer is that Indo-Pak relations are much where they are. Uh, Pakistan, I think, right now has an internal problem which it needs to sort out. It hasn't, uh, at one point of time, you could have said it's fomenting terrorists in, in the Indian part of Kashmir. But that has resulted in a huge backlash. Pakistan cannot control those terrorist groups. And Pakistan itself is now in the throes of a huge internal crisis. I think until that internal crisis within Pakistan is resolved, uh, what happens between Pakistan and India will not get resolved either. As far as uh, Afghanistan is concerned, the same thing applies. Uh, Pakistan has always wanted India out of Afghanistan. Uh, even when it was under great American pressure to allow Indian collaboration, India said, at least you allow us a transit route that our goods can go directly from India to Pakistan. And Pakistan said, absolutely no, that's one thing we will not allow. And that continues to be the case today. So I said, this is an area of not much progress, and I wouldn't expect very much. Well said. Okay, we have time for uh, one, probably one last question. And we'll take it right here. Here she comes with the mic. Go ahead, yes. Hi there, my, my name is Danish Maj, I'm a freelance writer. Uh, my question is uh, mostly for Mr. Ayer, but Feel free to take a tackle that, uh, Mr. Tellis, as well. Uh, I'm sure you guys heard about the recent spate of uh, radical reforms, if you will, with the recent 100% FDI uh, relaxing of norms uh, in defense and various other sectors, such as e-commerce, uh, uh, food, and uh, whatnot. Do you think that such further types of these measures by India will soliciting uh, more foreign investment, which is our, which are which is basically a part of, you know, liberalization. Do you think that will help India solve most of its uh, uh, big problems and its small problems as well? And uh, what, what does that mean exactly for uh, U.S.-India uh, defense and commercial ties? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, foreign investment is a tiny part of total investment. So if our own domestic savings are already providing 30 31% of all in, of GDP's investments, foreign investment might be 1%, 2% more. Now, you know, that's a valuable 1%, 2% additional, but it is only at the margin, so it's not critical in any sense. Secondly, the kinds of detailed rules on which you get these supposed liberalizations. There are all kinds of caveats, you know, provided this particular route, that particular rule, the subject of the subject to that. I don't see Indian defense companies rushing in to get into any big deals with India at all. Uh, a number of series of question marks. Uh, after the Indo-US uh, nuclear deal, there was the expectation that General Electric was set up these series of nuclear power plants, nothing, and the General Electric chief has said, frankly, we find conditions in India so dicey, we're not going to do it. So I would say, you know, okay, at the margin, Modi is making it a little easier. At least we can say on e-commerce, that's one area where he has said, this is a new area, and while there is a large, small shopkeeper lobby that he has protected till now, he has told them, I'll protect you against the Walmarts, but on e-commerce, Amazon others can come in. 
So that kind of thing has been, to that extent, you can say there has been progress, yes, a little. But as I said, overall, India's investment is fundamentally Indians investing in India. The foreign investment part is a small but a valuable part. I'm afraid we've run out of time. I want to thank all of you for coming. And before I invite you to go upstairs for an informal lunch, I want to ask you to join me in thanking both of our speakers today. Thank you. Thank you.